The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying?, what is Chen selling? To sign up for my letter as well as Chen's letter, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our number in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I do want to thank Dynasert. That's the company that has a technology that can reduce fuel consumption in semi-trucks by over 14% and is also uh, eliminating carbon emissions by 30 to 40%. A real great story, a real great company. We've talked to the CEO on this show, expect to have him on sometime in the near future. I think this is a company that you want to keep your eyes on as a potential investment. Uh, It's doing quite well. Of course, the proof will be in the pudding as the company starts to uh, generate sales. Uh, Imminently now, uh, we look forward to uh, keeping you up to date on that. Today I am attending the Cambridge House Conference uh, here in Vancouver, British Columbia, so uh, this show was pre-recorded at the end of last week. I have titled today's show, Exit the Banking System as Soon as Possible. Well, because of a shortage of time and the amount of material to cover, I want to welcome Ellen Brown, my first guest, right away. For those of you who may not be familiar with Ellen, I think most of you probably know her because she's been on this show before several times, and and she is certainly out in the public a lot, but she developed her research skills as as an attorney practicing civil litigation in Los Angeles in uh, Web of Debt, uh, her latest book. She turns those skills to an analysis of the Federal Reserve and the Money Trust. She shows how this private cartel has usurped the people's power to create money and how we, the people, can get it back. 
Ellen developed an interest in the developing world and its problems while living abroad for 11 years in Kenya, Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. She returned to practicing law when she was asked to join the legal team of a popular Tijuana healer and an innovative cancer therapy who was targeted by the chemotherapy industry in the 1990s. Well, that experience led her to her book, Forbidden Medicine, which traces the suppression of natural health treatments to the same corrupting influences that have captured the money system. Ellen's 11 books, including the bestseller Nature's Pharmacy, was co-authored by Dr. Lynn Walker. So she has a very impressive background, a prolific writer, and works very hard. And what I really love about Ellen is that she really really puts her heart and soul into uh, things that are really good for her fellow man. And uh, I, so that's why I really love to, to have her with me. Thanks for joining me again, Ellen. Uh, thanks, Jay. It's great to talk to you. Always good to talk to you, and uh, I know that there are a number of interviews. I would suggest that my listeners go to ellenbrown.com. A number of interviews and articles that you write are there, and things that uh, I think I would really like to have my my listeners uh, follow up with after uh, after we speak with you today. Ellen, you know, most people have no idea about how, how money is created in our fractional reserve banking system. It's, it's, it's a mystery. I mean, most people that carry the currency around in their pocket, they think that is money. But actually, that is a very small percentage of the amount of money that's out there. And in fact, we have a debt-based system, a monetary system. Can you explain to our listeners how money is created essentially out of nothing? Well, it's actually created when banks make loans, and money reformers have been saying that for a 100 years, at least, or more, but uh, the Bank of England just acknowledged it a year ago in their quarterly report. They said, contrary to popular belief, banks do not lend their deposits. They don't take in deposits and lend them out again. They're not just intermediaries, that they actually create deposits when they make loans. Mm Mm-hmm. So here's the way, and another way you can prove that is to look at a chart of the money supply. So the, the the M1 or the M0, the money that's actually created by the government, is a very low <laughs> low line at the bottom, and then you have this exponential line at the top, which is M2, which is the circulating money supply. And where did all that come from? It's you know it's not coins, it's not dollar bills, it's it came from banks when they make loans. So the way, the way it works would be, say you go to the bank and you take out a loan for a mortgage for $500,000. And the bank, without even looking at what they have in the way of reserves, they'll just write you write $500,000. If, if you're creditworthy, they'll write you $500,000 into your deposit account. So when they count the money supply, they count deposits as, as part of the money supply. So they've just increase the deposits by $500,000. So you'll probably write a check to your seller, which might go into another bank. Now, the first bank has to balance their books at the end of the day, so in that sense, they are using their deposits. But they have, actually, they have a, I think they have two weeks to to actually balance it all up with the Federal Reserve. And, And so they will be getting in deposits all day long, you know, they come in and they go out, and if they come up short at the end of the day, what they can do is borrow from another bank. So let's say they borrowed from Bank B, where they, that your check just went, that the money they just created. So they could be borrowing back that same $500,000, paying a very little interest on it. The Fed funds rate was 0.25%, I guess mm-hmm. it's gone up a bit. And... Uh, 
or they could, if nobody has reserves, they can borrow from the Federal Reserve, which creates them out of nothing on their books. The reser- these are the reserves, but now it's a complicated subject. The reserves and the deposits are exactly the same thing, but they go together. Anyway, that's the way it works. So it looks like when you're getting deposits in as a bank, you say, well, that's real money. You know, we've got real deposits in, but where did those deposits come from? All of it, except coins and paper dollar bills, were created by banks in the form of loans. Right. It's it's a mystery, and I think you explained it very well. Most people don't have a clue. They just figure it's, you know, dollar for dollar. Everything is there, and it's uh, uh, really created out of, out of thin air, essentially. Now, can you, most people believe, of course, that when they put their money, their money in the bank, in the Federal Reserve Banking System, I we use J.P. Morgan here in New York, that when we put our money in the bank, that it is still our money. But legally, uh, it's my understanding, Alan, that we are now unsecured creditors to that bank. It's no longer our money. It's a loan that we've made to the bank. Is that right? That's correct. That's been the law ever since the 19th century, where it was the depositors' money, and they they got so nervous about it, they were trying to tell the bank, oh, well, we don't think you should make that loan, or that looks too risky. And the bank said, well, we just can't operate this way. And so the courts said, okay, we're going to say that when when the bank gets the money, it's their money, and the depositor just has an IOU. So that's why they pay you, like when you look at your bank statement, it says 0.1 cents or something for interest every month. That's why they're paying you interest, because you are supposedly a creditor of the bank. Yeah, well, they're not paying very much. Uh, They're not paying me anything for my uh, demand deposits, uh, or very little, if anything, almost nothing for my uh, savings account as well. And uh, but that's another topic I want to get to uh, if we can. Um, the the idea, of course, that we're lending money, so we should be compensated not only for the time value of that money, but also for the risk. And let uh, that's what I'd really want to talk today today about is is the risks that we're facing when we put our money in the banking system. Now, you talked about how M zero is very small, and then you know it's. Uh, M1 and M2 and M3, and M, I guess they don't use M3 anymore, but how it's exponentially larger. But then much larger than that, those measures of money is something called derivatives, derivatives uh, that are hugely larger than, than the money supply. Can you talk to us about derivatives and why they are posing such a threat to us right now? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the official figure now is something like a quadrillion dollars. Which a quadrillion? Is a a, what, what is that? I can't get my head around. Yeah, a quadrillion is a thousand trillion, and a trillion is a thousand billion. Mind-boggling. Yeah, it's my, I mean, it's unfathomable sums. And the reason it's such a threat is that under the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 2005 and the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, um, derivatives go first in a bankruptcy. So it used to be that a bankruptcy, uh, when a bank went bankrupt, that they would sell off the assets and pay off the creditors that are stand in line. Now, with a bail, with the new thing is bail-in, now they take the creditors' money in order to prop the bank up. So the bank does not go back bankrupt. It just goes on its merry way, carrying on business, getting bigger and bigger, as we're seeing the big, big banks do. And and the, the creditor's money is taken. And little known to most people, we are credit, also creditors of the bank. So the derivatives claims are 
technically they're not even part of the bankruptcy. Like they, they don't, they're not. They it used to be they weren't subject to the automatic stay, and I mean, I guess now they're voluntarily subject to it for 24 hours, but it's or 48 hours, I think. But it's not very long. You know, it's not long enough for the for the bankrupt bankruptcy trustee to figure out who's getting what. Anyway, so the der- derivatives claims go first. They get to snatch the collateral. And if we don't even know what a big derivatives bust would look like. Lehman Brothers was not that big compared to the amount of derivatives that, say, J.P. Morgan or Citigroup, you know, those the really big derivatives banks have this ominous amount of derivatives on their books. And so we, we just don't know. We, we could be facing a much bigger collapse than with Lehman Brothers, and that would wipe out the collateral of the bank, including state and local government deposits, which are not, I mean, they're supposedly secured with collateral, but they're not insured. You know, they're way over $250,000, so mm-hmm. they don't come within the FDIC insurance limit. But they think, they're, you know, if you talk to politicians, they say, well, we're not worried because our, our deposits are secured. Yeah. But their security falls in line behind the derivatives players. So the derivatives players get the money first, and there just might not be anything left. And even for us, the insured depositors under 250000 we're insured. I mean, the money will be gone. We're insured by the FDIC, so the FDIC then has to step in and pay us. But they only have $67 billion in their their um, insurance fund, and the amount of insured deposits is something like $6.5 trillion. Oh. And they have a credit line with the Treasury up to $500 billion. But that's just a credit line, first of all. Who's going to pay that money back if if it's up to the theoretically it's the banks that, that that pay the premiums and that's where the Fed fund money I mean the FDIC funds money comes from and when we went over or when the FDIC fund went over or went in a hole by I think 8 billion dollars in 2009 uh, a number of little banks almost went under I mean these were huge premiums that they could barely pay so either we're going to break the little banks which it looks to me like they're trying to do anyway mm-hmm. force them to consolidate with the big banks or we the taxpayers are, are going to be on the hook again just like we were before but mm-hmm. in any case our deposits are at risk our public deposits are at risk and uh, you know the the bank the whole banking system is so corrupt we've just seen one thing after another there's things like uh, um, the big short that the, I mean there are movies now I bet it is. Right. so people right. are really getting the picture that this is not necessarily where you want to keep your money you know, there was a time, Ellen, when commercial banks were commercial banks and investment banks were investment banks. The investment bankers were entitled to their huge profits because they were taking bigger risks and the commercial banks were not taking such risks. And in fact, I think they were probably didn't have or weren't tied into those dangerous derivatives you're talking about, at least not to the extent they are now. Glass-Steagall was removed during Greenspan's tenure at the Federal Reserve during Bill Clinton's presidency. Was that the start of the kind of problems we're having now? Was that a big part of the reason we're in trouble now, in addition to the bankruptcy uh, revision law and, the, and uh, Dodd-Frank? Yes, well, that's, that is why we have this big risk, because there, was a, there were 5% of the derivatives that were not supposedly uh, covered by FDIC insurance, or that you couldn't, do, you couldn't gamble with your, your deposits. 
Mm -hmm. or a mere 5% of these derivatives. And a year ago, in the Cromnibus budget bill, um, Citigroup petitioned, you know, quietly, <laughs> leaned on everybody to, to get that 5% taken out. So now, like, virtually oh. all the derivatives are covered, and this would include the oil derivatives. These are oh. bets oh. against the collapse in the price of oil, which Citigroup had a lot of, and so that presumably that was why they were so concerned. So we, the people, again, could be on the hook for all that. Yeah, it, but and derivatives are what essentially got us in trouble with the um, subprime collapse because it used to be that banks would keep loans on their books. So of course they're interested in making sure these people pay up, so they don't take bad. They don't wouldn't take bad loans or bad, you know, loans where they weren't sure how they were going to get their money back. But once um, the banks were able to sell it off to investors, then they didn't care whether whether they were really good pays or not. You know, they just had to convince the investors to buy the things. And the way they convinced the investors was they said, well, don't worry about risk because we protected it with derivatives. Yeah. What nobody was figuring on is that these are not, this is not real insurance. and It's not like there's a government agency that, that checks to make sure they've got the money to pay up. In fact, nobody knows who the counterparty is on your derivatives, so it could be some outfit that just goes bankrupt, which is what happened in 2007 when mm-hmm. two Bear Stearns hedge funds went bankrupt, and that's what got everybody all upset, like... Oh my God! <laughs> you know, you you would you would think, Ellen, and I and I think that probably the derivatives gave that sort of false sense of security that there was that the system was secure, and maybe on an individual basis, as long as the system itself was was good, it was it was helpful to businesses. If you wanted, you know, if you needed a fixed rate loan, you could get it. You could you could borrow floating and and uh, change it into a fixed rate, and there might be someone on the other side of the trade that wanted the other side. It gives that false sense of security, and then the huge amounts of money that was pumped into the system that allowed it to expand and then you turn around and say well sorry you know the banks can make the profits but when you have the system breaking down taxpayers you're going to have to pay for it it's just it's just so immoral it's just so it's just so horrible it seems to me alan could you explain bail-ins what is a bail-in because this is what we have coming our way now i guess starting in europe right yeah, a bail-in in Dodd-Frank and also in the um, European Banking Union um, deal that was just, I think it was formally agreed to a, a year ago, I think. Um, well, in Do- Dodd-Frank was 2010, and Obama, President Obama went on TV and said, no more bailouts, you know, this, that's what it meant, no more bailouts. Wait, no more too big to fail, supposedly, but actually what it does is... Um, make too big to fail permanent but what they do instead of the government bailing out banks that are insolvent the creditors are supposed to bail them out Mm. in other words they tax the creditors money yeah which you think well okay the shareholders they they took a risk buying the shares in that bank and so they have to eat it and it's only fair but you're not thinking that the that the creditors mean the shareholders, the bondholders, and the depositors. And mm-hmm. In fact, the largest class of uh, creditor of any bank is the depositors. Now, for most of us, we're probably under the $250,000 limit, but then you've got all these businesses that have to keep a lot amount, of, a large amount of cash for their cash flow, you know, to pay 
payroll. payroll and all. That, yeah. That's what happened in Cyprus was the shot across the bow. So that was the, the first week. The first bail-in. Bail-in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the people that were really hurt were the local businesses because they they lost 50% of their money, 50% of their deposits, and they needed that money for their cash flow. Mm-hmm. So that meant that they either went out of business or they... Um, cut way back on their, you know, laid people off, et cetera. So the whole economy really suffered just from this this bail-in of two two big banks. And now we've seen, so in Europe, starting this month, um, last year they were bailing in bondholders and uh, stockholders, but this year, starting in January, they're also including depositors. So two big bail-ins that I know of that were fairly shocking and disastrous was one in in Italy there were four banks and they weren't even what we'd call too big to fail banks there were four local banks that were had were, had been insolvent for a couple of years and they were trying to work this out and they took the money of the bondholders so these were people that had bought bank bonds so there was the reason it made the news was one man one pensioner hanged himself we lost a hundred thousand euros. It was like his all his money, mm. retirement money. Tragic. And uh, left a note and blamed his bank, where he had banked for fifty years. You know, he thought they were reliable, and they re- probably really were. It was just it wasn't the bank's fault so much. It was system the policy that they were forced to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just like last week or the week before, just recently in Italy, they had one of these good bank bad bank situation so if you were a bondholder in the good bank you thought your bonds were perfectly good and all of a sudden just sort of arbitrarily to to bail out this, these banks they moved the good bank bonds into the bad bank wow. so suddenly they lost 80% of their investment so this will this is going to first of all it's going to stop people from they're going to certainly think twice about buying bonds bank bonds which is a big source of capital for the banks which they're needing more and more of because of heightened regulation and it's just you know <laughs> I mean it makes the whole banking system very very insecure so all right I well that's public bank banks. well that, that's in that's in Europe um, but you know the United States is not that uh, is a much stronger safer country right everything is honky-dory here I mean things are <laughs> we're the United States of America we don't have those and we we don't have the problems that Europe has. We're a much stronger economy. We don't have the problems that Asia has. But you're saying, if I understand you, that we are also being being threatened with bail-ins. You mentioned Dodd-Frank has a provision in it, does it? Yeah, and we're in some ways we're actually more vulnerable than they are because of this bankruptcy reform act provision and dodd frank provision that says that the derivatives go first in a bankruptcy so they're first in line and we have our two big to fail banks are hugely loaded down with derivatives i think it's something like 247 trillion dollars worth of derivatives incredible four big or five big derivatives banks yeah a huge sum so we're so we could be very vulnerable and you mentioned then if i understood what you said earlier that uh, our laws really give these derivative guys um, the advantage over over us over the the common folks yeah and you know who they are they're basically the bankers every over-the-counter derivative has a bank on at least I mean, the the banks set these things up. They're the house, so you know the house always wins. Yes. (laughs) 
they understand the game where where the Patsy Pension Fund or local government or whatever that takes the bet is probably yeah. gonna probably doesn't get it and probably gonna lose. I remember when Alan Greenspan backed that up, you know, totally when he was at the Federal Reserve back in the Clinton days. Saying that the banks needed needed to make some money. We needed to compete with the other banks. Yeah, right, right the other banks around the world, yeah. It's, it, it, well, anyway, it's, as you say, the casino, is, the, the house wins, and the house is rigged, and that's the way it is. But you, Alan, have been an advocate of public banking and you just started talking about it and I know that you are, are involved I think you're involved at least with a public bank in the state of North Dakota I think it's the Bank of North Dakota if you put your money in a place like the Bank of North Dakota do you feel safer than if it's a JP Morgan Chase Oh I definitely would but I don't think you can do it as an out of state case That's why you, we need it's a great model and it's it's worked really well for them. Even it used to be that people would say, "Well, they've got oil. That's why North Dakota is doing so well." But now, oil is doing poorly, and North Dakota is still holding its own because they've got this great bank that's got reserves, and uh, and so it's kind of like China, you know. And they can double down when when things go bad. They can, they're they're putting even more money into local projects to keep the economy revved up. Is that because they've been conservative, Ellen? They don't have uh, sort of reckless lending policies that that might be uh, undertaken by banks that know they can always get bailed out, or that the uh, creditors, the depositors, will bail them in. Now they know government's got their back, and you know that's that's the system we have, as opposed to a, a Bank of North Dakota that is responsible to the. Uh, you know, closer home to their own uh, to their own people, um, the citizens of North Dakota, and then that they is that how you account for them being more responsible in their lending policies? Is that why they're in better shape despite a bad oil economy now in North Dakota? Well, that's one reason that the Bank of North Dakota has been in business for a hundred years. And they they don't do derivatives. They say if we don't understand it, we don't do it. I mean, it's just old-fashioned North Dakota sort of mentality. I mean, they're mm-hmm. a conservative state. You know, it's not like a socialist state. Um, and their whole business model is just very efficient. So instead of putting their um, deposits in Wall Street for Wall Street to gamble with, they put their deposits in their own bank. By law, all of the state's deposits go into the Bank of North Dakota. Then they have then they can use those deposits, you know, to do what all banks do, make lots of loans for, they have a mandate to serve the local economy and they have particular sectors that they particularly give low interest loans to, um, education, agriculture, and energy particularly. So they give like 1%, or I think it's now 1.7% loans for students, 1% loans for startup farmers, that sort of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and they have they don't have any high paid they don't pay bonuses fees commissions they don't you know they don't do gambling yeah or, or other than making ordinary loans and they partner with the, with the local banks so the local bank is sort of like the front office and the bank of North Dakota it just comes in and participates in the loan so they don't really have much in the way of cost mm-hmm. and they the highest paid person is the um, president who makes some somewhere on the order of $250,000 a year, nothing compared to, I think it's $20 million for the CEO of Wells Fargo. 
They don't aver- they don't have to advertise for deposits. They've got a built in deposit base. They don't advertise for customers because mm-hmm. they they get to go out and seek. They get to choose the the projects that they want to invest in. Mm-hmm. Of course, the local banks are real happy to have them. Sure. To allow them to do larger loans, and what they do for the local banks is they guarantee the loan, so they effectively substitute for capital. So they. They help with the capital requirements and mm-hmm. with liquidity. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all very good uh, for if you live in North Dakota. Um, what What about me? I live here in New, in New York City now. <laughs> I know that uh, Mrs. Taylor, who takes care of the uh, the financial end of things here in our little business, uh, likes to stay with J.P. Morgan Chase because it has so many conveniences. That's one of the reasons she doesn't want to change to other banks. But let me ask you, before you comment on that, what about putting your money in a local, let's say, a, a credit union or something like that? Would you be safer with something like that than, say, the the, the uh, Federal Reserve System? Yeah. Well, you are in theory because they're not too big to fail banks, so they're not subject to bail-ins. I mean, they're not in the Dodd-Frank Act. But they, you still might want to check with the bank and find out, do they do overnight sweeps? where mm-hmm. they put their money in Wall Street overnight because you know that the big banks are going to go bankrupt overnight. Mm-hmm. They always do, yeah. you know, off hours. Um, and do they use big correspondent banks and check the credit rating maybe with, uh, I know, Weiss does credit rating. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, so you still want to check carefully and watch the news because there's a lot of pressure on the on the local banks and the credit unions. They're trying to force them to, it looks to me, like they're trying to force them to merge with the big banks. Rules mm-hmm. rules could change and seem to be changing. And generally, you probably don't want to keep a huge amount of money in any one place. Right. So, I mean, uh, credit unions or, or possibly uh, some savings and loans institutions that are conservative with the way they lend their money, uh, but if they're tied into the whole system, and this is what I think it, it, the Fed wants is a monopoly, and it essentially has a monopoly or a major part of the economy, and then uh, and to sort of pull everybody into the system so that nobody uh, can protect themselves, essentially. I, I uh, and the convenience issue, I, I would imagine that the Bank of North Dakota doesn't offer the kind of conveniences. I mean, it has—I think it has one, one branch essentially, one main office, one main uh, facility. Where here, you know, we can go anywhere in the tri-state area or whatever around the country and, and pull our money out of J.P. Morgan Chase. Or, you know, for commercial banking, um, it's it's easier too with our merchant account and so forth than it would be to go to a savings and loan or a credit union or something like that. I guess. So they sort of have you. Locked in with this convenience thing, they keep the they keep you uh, sort of sucked into the system, don't they? Yeah, that's a that's a problem. But, well, yeah. So if you if you're a business, I I don't know what to recommend. Because yeah. You need you need those big banks, and that's what the the state and local governments have too much money and too much business to use credit unions or to use the small local right. banks. So they, they use Wall Street because they have to. Right. And that's another argument for setting up your own bank. I mean, they, you, it's just they're losing so much money. On, you keep seeing articles about, you know, shocking fees that nobody was aware of and um, 
not to mention whatever it was, the five trillion dollars or something that got wiped out from the subprime scandal, which was all Wall Street's doing. I mean, it's just being—it's so expensive and so risky. It just seems to me it would be worth state and local governments' time to look into setting up their own bank. We have a in California. We have an infrastructure bank, so we've already got a bank. It's just not a depository bank. They—they can come up with. I mean, they've got the ability to change the laws. That's what laws are for. I mm-hmm. mean, that's what Congresses are for. Right. Legislatures are for. Well, Ellen, uh, we're just about out of time here, but I know that you uh, you are a tireless advocate for uh, for an ethical banking system, a public banking system that that looks after the interests of the of the people. And I'm I'm so grateful that you're doing that work. Where you're you're speaking in a lot of different places. I know you're very active. And I would just like to tell our, our listeners to go to ellenbrown.com. There's uh, maybe just to ask you to comment very quickly on an article I haven't had the time to read yet, but one that you've posted there, I guess just very recently, is the Citadel is breached. Congress taps the Fed for infrastructure funding. Could you talk to us just briefly about that and and tell people why they should go there to read this. Okay, well, we have our infrastructure has been falling apart for a long time and both parties, both houses are where, you know, are have been on it and said we have to do something about infrastructure, but they couldn't agree on how to fund it. So they finally came up with the compromise that they would hit up the Federal Reserve, which is about time if you ask me. So so they're getting the money for this 305 billion dollar um, transportation bill by partly by taking a portion of the dividends that for a hundred years ever since the Fed was founded mm-hmm. have gone to the to the member banks their share their um, shareholders you know it's the Fed is composed of twelve branches all of which are hundred percent owned by the banks in their districts sure so it's partly that and then partly they took it out of the reserves of the federal reserve well the, the or the capital surplus that Federal Reserve doesn't really need a surplus because they can they have the power to create. So, but and Ben Bernanke admitted to that, but he said in a blog, but it looks bad, <laughs> you know, to be hitting up a, an independent central bank. So the point is, they're not independent anymore, which to me is good. That's a good they, thing. They, yeah, they're not. They've never been independent of Wall Street. This mm-hmm. is dependent of the public interest. So, Con- contrary to what the Congress designed, right? Yeah, our Constitution. Constitution yeah, or even, co- yeah. even when they passed the Federal Reserve Act, it was so obscure. You know, it was William Jennings Bryan was the opposition. And mm-hmm. said, no way would he ever approve of a bill that um, gave the power to create money to Wall Street. Sure. And when he saw the final bill, he said, at last, the, the people will be creating, issuing the money themselves. Oh, hardly. Which wasn't true. It was just so obscure that, that even when it was passed, the people didn't understand it. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, Ellen. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's always insightful. And uh, I just, again, want to thank you for being on our show and uh, wish you all the best. And if people want to get behind uh, behind your efforts, I guess they can do that. How, how can they do that? How can they get involved if they want to? Um, well, the, our website for Public Banking Institute is publicbankinginstitute.org. You can sign up for the newsletter, and there are many other suggestions there on the website. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with us once again, Ellen, and we look to talk to you again sometime in the near future. Very much. Okay. Thanks, Jay. Well, folks, don't go away because Roy Sabag of goldmoney.com will be with me to talk about the BitGold payment system and how you can use gold money 
as a means of protecting your wealth from the confiscation that Ellen Brown just talked to us about. That is the confiscation from the Federal Reserve Banking System. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Roy Sabog after the commercial break. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dynacert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dynacert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dinosert.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Roy Sabog of Gold Money. Uh, and uh, Roy is the founder and team leader of BitGold, which recently merged with Gold Money. He has been an active investor and portfolio manager for over a decade, specializing in distressed, event-driven, and natural resource investments. Throughout his career, he has correctly predicted important investment and economic themes before they materialized, resulting in risk-adjusted returns that significantly outperformed market indexes. And now, Roy is putting his efforts behind BitGold and gold money. Well, thanks for joining me again, Roy. It's always a pleasure to have you with me. Thanks for having me again, Jay. You know, for those uh, who who are not familiar with BitGold, and you've been on, I think, at least twice on this show, uh, with BitGold and gold money, um, they were, as I mentioned, just merged together last year. Tell our listeners uh, what services both of those institutions provide. Sure. Uh, so very simply, BitGold is an online payments and savings platform uh, that utilizes gold bullion as its only uh, unit of account. Uh, the gold bullion is physical, it's allocated, it's insured, and it's redeemable. Uh, so think of BitGold as a gold-backed PayPal system. You can make a deposit into it, you can make a payment with it, you can redeem gold out of it. Uh, and if you're a merchant, you will be uh, very shortly uh, be able to send an invoice to someone, uh, which they can then pay, uh, or you'll be able to install uh, a checkout button on your website uh, through which people can make purchases uh, gold Money uh, is a business that we own as well. Uh, it's based in Jersey in the Channel Islands. Uh, it was a business founded by James Turk uh, close to 15 years ago. Uh, gold Money is more focused on long-term wealth preservation. It offers you uh, an account uh, where you can wire in funds, uh, one of six or seven different currencies. You can then buy uh, a variety of precious metals, not just gold. You can buy gold, silver, plat- platinum, and palladium. And we've now introduced uh, the gold money uh, 
prepaid card, which uh, you're allowed to have a, a card in U.S. dollars, in euros, or in British pounds. And then you can uh, withdraw your gold value from your gold money account to one of those cards and, and use the card at any point of sale or ATM machine. All right. Well, you know, Roy, we just talked to Alan Brown, who explained why depositors in the uh, commercial banking system in the United States and in many countries around the world are facing uh, increased risks, risks of bail-ins, risks of uh, zero or negative interest rates. According to her, bail-ins are already starting in Europe, and of course we've had uh, the trial of them in, in Cyprus a couple of years back. Uh, and she says that given recent legal revisions to the bankruptcy laws in the United States, along with Dodd-Frank, American depositors are, are in some ways even more vulnerable than Europeans in uh, to bail-in risks. Well, I believe, um, you know, BitGold and gold money are completely outside of the banking system. Is that correct? And if so, I should think they would, uh, either of those institutions would provide some wealth protection if you're worried about uh, about risks within the banking system. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the founding, foundational kind of ethos uh, of, of BitGold uh, was to build a financial service uh, platform or business that was totally outside of the, of the existing financial system. And um, we, we, we did a lot of work on how, how we could achieve that objective. Um, and the only way you can achieve that while still providing liquidity uh, to your customers is, is by utilizing gold because gold has such a, um, you know, such a, such a great infrastructure that's been around for hundreds of years where there are deep and liquid markets for gold, people willing to buy gold or sell gold in different currencies. There are really, really good and well-articulated standards and procedures uh, like the LBMA standard um, where, where there are chain of custodies, there's chains, chains of integrity, um, there's auditing standards and procedures, uh, you know, transportation providers and vault custodians that are all approved. So if you want to live outside the banking system, uh, you need a unit of account. Um, and so gold has already uh, that function of, of being liquid. And then for all the other reasons that make gold a proper uh, and, and pretty much the best unit of account, um, but yeah, when you have an account at BitGold uh, or at Gold Money, you're fully reserved. So, so the entry that you see is actually backed by a serialized vaulted piece of metal. Mm -hmm. That metal is insured. That metal is allocated to customers. That metal uh, is redeemable. And so, uh, if if there are bail-ins uh, in the financial system, um, you know, you basically are totally immune. Uh, and and with BitGold. Uh, you can still affect transactions. So, you know, on day two of, of such an event, you're, you know, you wake up, you log into your phone or to your BitGold account, and you could still send gold to your loved ones, your family, or you could still consume goods or services or accept payment for goods and services utilizing uh, a BitGold. And so that's really um, an interesting manifestation. And, and by the way, that didn't exist over the last financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, I think that's, what's really interesting is, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same signs. Uh, Josh and I, uh, the co-founders of BitGold, we, we're seeing a lot of the same signs that we've seen, uh, that we saw in 2008, um, before that financial crisis. And, and a lot of the financial markets, you know, if you study financial markets, there are a lot of really interesting signs, whether it's the VIX or whether it's the overnight moves in the S&P futures, 
um, that are that are analogous to uh, the action that we saw in 2008 and 2007. And we're actually working on a piece right now uh, where we, we think the debt debt and deri- der- derivatives that are exposed to energy uh, are as high as the subprime debt. Mm. debt wow. level. So so once that's that starts permeating uh, through the financial system, uh, you can have a sort of a, a, ch- a chain effect. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, I, I really, really hope that's not going to happen because, um, you know, we all know the debt levels are, are astronomically high. And we all know that the central banks have reached the quote-unquote Keynesian endpoint. They can no longer uh, do much more. And I, I sincerely believe that if the Western central banks were to actually go into negative interest rate territory, at this stage, that would be viewed as a weakness by the mm-hmm. Fed, mm-hmm. not strength. And, and though maybe a quarter or two out, um, they will have succeeded uh, in, in, in you know, stimulating and, and liquidity, Th- those two quarters will, will initially be met with uh, a flight to safety. And I, and I think just in, in general, um, you know, uh, runs, runs on financial institutions. Yeah. So, so really, you know, the, the core idea for BitGold, uh, you know, we had when we saw the last round of bail-ins, I, I saw uh, a run on a bank in California in 2008 um, where, you know, there was a bank called IndyMac, and I had friends that had accounts at IndyMac, and there was about four or five days where they couldn't access their deposits. Mm-hmm. They, they were fine in the end. Uh, uh, Sheila Baer, at the time, the head of the FDIC, she bailed, she bailed out IndyMac. Um, but there were four or five days where their ATM cards didn't work, and they couldn't uh, actually access their deposit at the bank. And this was in the United States in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, Roy, I, I just had to—I just have to to mention here uh, for those listeners of ours that may not be that familiar with the way the banking system works. The commercial banking system, when you put your money in uh, as a deposit, you are of course um, a an unsecured creditor to the bank to the banking system, but they can take that money that you deposit and lend it out multiple times. Well, if I go and buy, take my money and buy some gold and it's put in uh, bit gold, that bit gold is my gold and it cannot be lent out and it certainly won't be lent out multiple times, right? That is correct. So a good way to, 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 to understand this is look at the legal constructs. Um, legal constructs of a banking depositors uh, require this like incredible regulation uh, whether it's the OCC um, or whether it's the FDIC uh, or state regulators. And, and the reason they need all this regulation, the, the reason they need all these standards is because the second they get your money as a deposit, they, they're allowed to lend it out uh, as, as, mu- as much as eight times. Mm-hmm. And with the derivatives and swaps and all these other financial instruments, um, they can get levered uh, you know, 20 to 1 um, or 15 to 1 quite easily today still. So, in other words, um, you're making a deposit of a dollar, uh, and and then you know only maybe ten cents of that dollar is being held in reserve. So when you're when you show up at the bank and demand your dollar back, uh, th- that that dollar is, is simply not there. Uh, it's been lent out. Um, now the loan itself may have value. It may even have more intrinsic value than at the time you lent uh, the, the money or that you made the deposit. But the problem is that. Uh, there's something called reflexivity in market. So when everyone wants the dollar back, um, it actually reduces the value of the loans. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the system itself is is, is flawed. Um, and you know, we, we've seen we've seen it only survive because of the fiat money standard. Uh, a system like this uh, would be impossible 
uh, under a gold standard. Um, conversely, uh, with, with BitGold, the legal construct is bailment. Uh, and, and, and the bailment construct is basically saying, look, we're acting on your behalf and on your instruction, but we have zero rights to your gold. And this is what's codified with Brinks as well, the vault custodian. So the vault custodian knows that we're only allowed to act on your behalf, mm-hmm. okay? And, and so we're not allowed to commingle the gold. We're not allowed to do anything with the gold other than liquidate it or take the funds from your deposit uh, processor, if it's a Visa or a MasterCard or a wire, to buy gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all that activity is fully segregated. So totally two, two different legal constructs between banking and, and something like BitGold. And the truth is that something like BitGold um, wouldn't have been possible without the advancements we made in, in technology. Like we had to make it settleable. And anyone that's used BitGold by now understands this concept of pending and settled. They can see that sometimes when they make a deposit, it could take two days till they get their gold. Uh, that is how the real world works. You have to actually get confirmation from the vault custodian that the counterparty you purchased the metal from, uh, on the other hand, had, on the other side, has actually delivered the metal. But once that metal is delivered and it's settled, and, and you have a settled balance on the BitGold platform, the beauty is you can then use it to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Send it to anyone, uh, and, and it's basically as good as gold. Mm-hmm. Well, I see a real basic difference here. You know, Ellen Brown, uh, our guest before you, was talking about how, again, people put their money in a bank and they think it's their money, but legally, they are really unsecured creditors to that bank. If I have my grams of gold at BitGold, it's my gold, right? It's my asset. I'm not a lender to BitGold. That is correct. Yeah. You are, you are, we, we aren't even allowed to, to be borrowing from anyone. I mean, mm-hmm. We're regulated as a money service business, and the key differentiating factor between an MSB or a money service business uh, and a bank is the money service business is not allowed to fractionally reserve uh, their unit of account. So we're only allowed to deal with fully reserved um, u- units of account uh, and to essentially allow two parties to transmit that value between each other. So we just chose to do it with gold. Um, but, but that is exactly correct. It's, it's always your gold. It's redeemable, it's insured, it's segregated, uh, and it's physical. You know, a lot of people have, have written into us think, saying, like, are you sure it's physical? You should uh-huh. not. Like, no, no, it's physical. I mean, if, if you want to redeem your physical kilogram, go ahead and, and, and do it. You know, if you want to redeem 10 grams of gold, uh, we, we encourage people to do that as well. In fact, that's how we make money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, all right. Well, you know, let, uh, with just a couple of minutes left, Roy, tell us, uh, tell our listeners, what are the fees for your services? So the fee is a 1% uh, off the bid or offer to make a deposit or redemption. So if you deposit uh, $100, uh, you are going to be charged 1% off the offer at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the offer is generally the spot price. And if you look on our website, we have a live price. That's simply the midpoint price between the bid and the offer. Okay. It's a real-time price. Okay, So some people have been confused with that as well. We, we wanted to make gold simple. So we didn't even like the concept of a bid or an offer right? because it confuses most people. They don't understand what that means. Um, you pay that 1% over the bid or over the offer. You then have gold in your account. We do not charge you a storage or custody fee. We pay a storage and custody fee that includes insurance for you, 
okay? But we eat that cost. And then, and then basically you can use the gold for free. So you can make payments within the platform for free. But if you choose to, say, load your, your debit card, we give you a free debit card if you have over one gram of gold. Uh, if you choose to use the debit card, it's considered a redemption because you're liquefying the gold from, from gold grams into uh, uh, whatever currency is on your debit card. So, of course, you're charged that 1% again off the bid. Um, but so long as you use gold within the platform, I send you some gold, Jay, you send some gold to your uh, son or daughter, that's totally free. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's all right. Uh, you uh, you mentioned that there's a lot of interest right now, and it's it's not surprising to me given the sort of turmoil in the equity markets and the debt markets and so forth that uh, people are probably starting to think more seriously. Um, how are your numbers coming along, Roy? Uh, how are your member? How's the membership? How's the number of people that are using your service? Is that growing quite rapidly now? Yeah, so I have to be careful since we're a publicly traded company and, uh, you know, our key performance indicators are, are published every 30 days. Okay. I don't want to be providing any material non-public information. What I, what I have said on Twitter, uh, and, and uh, securities regulators consider Twitter to be a, an adequate form of distribution, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what I've said is that we're having the best month we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that people will, be, uh, will, will recognize that when they see the KPIs. Well, I was just uh, watching, in fact, a, um, uh, I think an executive uh, at PayPal uh, the other day. I think he was at Davos, and he was uh, being interviewed on television, and he was talking about PayPal. He said their biggest, uh, com- uh, their biggest competition or their greatest competition is not MasterCard or Visa, but really is something like, well, people who are just using cash. He said that 85% of transactions around the world are still conducted in cash, which was somewhat surprising to me. But who do you see uh, as your main target audience who are you looking to to do business with well coincidentally it's the same exact customers that are using paypal except that there's a cross-section of customers that are also using something like a td ameritrade or a schwab for their mm-hmm. wealth management and again take that brand and extrapolate it globally i, I watched that same panel uh, with dan shulman uh, at davos yesterday i thought it was a really good panel actually mm-hmm. uh, and i urge viewers to to, to listen to it but it is phenomenal to me how arrogant these guys are and, and how they want to eliminate cash uh, from the system so that, they're, so that they can control all the money. Um, I, I think that it's, it's not going to work for them. I think there will always be something like cash. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's one of those like foundational rights. It's God. almost like a civil right. <laughs> I would definitely agree with you on that, Roy. I, I'm so glad you could be with us again. Uh, want to talk to you some more, more often, you or somebody from your shop, because there's. I think it's a really exciting story that you have. I think I'm very interested in the stock as well, and I talk to my listeners about that from time to time as well as my subscribers. So uh, I guess the best place is bitgold.com people should go to, right, to follow up? That's it. That is correct, bitgold.com. And if you open an account today uh, and if you have your credit card handy, you're eligible for a uh, first deposit bonus uh, if you make a deposit within 15 minutes. I, I also think it would be great for you to have Daryl McMullen uh, online next time. He is okay. uh, our okay. new CEO, and he actually was the CEO of PayPal Canada. Excellent. We'll try to do that sometime in the near future. I want to thank you very much, Roy, and all the best to you, and, and we'll look to do it again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Jay.
Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, my guest will be David Haggith, who writes a very important blog called TheGreatRecession.info blog. I hope also to have Chen Lin with me and Michael Oliver as well. I do want to thank Dinosert, our sponsor for today's show, for making the show economically viable. And also thanks to my producer, Tacey Trump, Matt Widener, my engineer, and again to all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dinosert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dinosert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dinosert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dinosert.com.